We have been studying uh, the book of Acts, right? This is the year of, of breaking into new territory, new terrain, new frontiers. And here we are, you know, in season two of uh, the book of Acts, we have covered quite a lot of ground. And now today we are going to cover a very fascinating part of the book of Acts. It's about the... Um, I'm just going to pray and then we get into the scripture, okay? And then I'll have a lot to say today. Come, let's all pray together. Let's all pray together. Father, we thank you. We surrender our thoughts, our hearts, our minds, our strength, our ability to pay attention and to focus onto you and unto you, Lord God. So Lord Jesus, may you take all our faculties, Lord God, and may you turn them into instruments to bring glory and growth in Christ, Lord God. So Father, take over in this service. May I decrease, may you increase to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 15. Okay, I'm going to read the text and then we're going to do a bit of intro on it. Okay, Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council has just completed. Paul and Barnabas have just scored a huge victory, okay, and uh, against the, against the so-called threat of legalism in the church. They have said no to the requirement for circumcision and then they kind of go back to Antioch, they rest up, and then this happens. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They want to reverse their missionary journey and go back and, and check out how everyone is. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Father, may you add your blessing to the reading of this word. This is what happens at the end of that little uh, uh, situation. Barnabas in green goes from Antioch to Cyprus. And if his line doesn't continue to joget joget around Europe, it's because they settle in Cyprus, right? And start, start pastoring the community there. Paul, on the other hand, goes with Silas up north through Tarsus, and then he goes one huge round. That ends up being his second missionary journey. But something causes their paths to diverge. Something causes them as a partnership in mission work to split. Today, I want to share with you about their conscious uncoupling, right? How many of y'all get this? If you, if, you get, if you get this, raise your hand. Nobody gets this. Hey, no one gets it. Yeah, only Bill gets it. Yeah. Okay. Now, no, the joke is when Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin divorced, they called it a conscious uncoupling. So this is a, an in-joke, right? See if you all get it. You all didn't. It's okay, right? <laughs> Three things I want to show you today, right? Uh, Paul and Barnabas, their friendship. They went through thick and thin together. But they fought. They fought and it was ugly. 
and some of the consequences of that fight was permanent. But in the end, God still gave and opened them up to a future. A future with new journeys, a future with new journeys with new people. And today, my heart as your pastor is to pastor you into understanding what God does through your friendships, how He redeems friendships that could be broken, and how sometimes when in our own human sinfulness, we break our friendships or we break each other beyond the ability to repair them on this side of eternity. And I want to give you hope that God is a God of restoration, God is a God of redemption, and sometimes even if you don't have the space, the geography, the, the, the proximity, the relationship, the mental capacity, the emotional energy, or even the enough years, or maybe they've passed on, I just want you to know that God is a God who can and does redeem everything, if not here, then even on that other shore. But first, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. First is Paul and Barnabas and their friendship. They went through thick and thin together. Now, before Paul even enters Barnabas, before Barnabas, Paul enters Barnabas' life, you know. Barnabas uh, has already shown up in the book of Acts. How many of you remember pre-Pauline Barnabas? You're, you're like, you've got this laser memory. You can like suddenly like bang one part of the Bible and you can dig up a mention of Barnabas from the first few chapters of Acts. How many of you can? This is like quiz maximum. This is like, this is better than blowing the candle. Yeah. Nobody, right? Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Wow, May, May. What happens in the last part of chapter 4? Yes. How many of you remember um, uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? How they went off, sold a piece of land, brought only part of the proceeds, and we talked about peer pressure. We talked about the need to appear, to look like you are giving a lot when you actually could not give that much, you know? And we talked about that. Now, immediately preceding, just before Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas had sold. He was among those who sold a piece of his land um, and gave the proceeds to the church. And, and it says here, right, that's Joseph, that's his other name, right, who was also called by the apostles uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Um, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that, that's our Barnabas, okay? Um, clearly we see that he's got a big heart. Okay, such a big heart, they gave him the name Barnabas, yeah, which means son of encouragement. Now, what happened was, we all know in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus raging against the church, right? Persecuting Christians from town to town on his way to Damascus. God stops him, God breaks that, that will, God breaks that darkness in him, right? Ironically, by sending him into blindness, right? And, and then, he, he continues he, all the way to Damascus. The people in Damascus are freaking out because it's like, oh, this guy came to persecute us. Now what? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know? It was actually Barnabas who vouched for Saul. It was Barnabas. When they went to Jerusalem, everyone was scared of him in Jerusalem because they knew he had a bad rap, right? And so when they got to Jerusalem, no one dared to touch Saul. But it was Barnabas, okay, um, who 
rod, took him and brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road to Damascus he had seen the Lord. Barnabas was the one who vouched for Saul. And not just that, when the people in Jerusalem wanted to stone uh, um, uh, Paul, Saul, as he was referred to in, in, in the Bible then, you know, um, among the brothers, it says that uh, in the same text, continuing from Barnabas bringing him, it says that the, to, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to his hometown, his kampong in Tarsus, right? So Barnabas was likely to be among the group who rescued Saul and brought him first to, to Caesarea. It's quite far, you know, like Jerusalem to Caesarea on the, on the western coast and then all the way up to Tarsus. I don't know if they just bring him there and then like bye-bye, you know, or whether they, they, they bring him all the way to Tarsus, right? But one thing I do know, after some time passes and the church in Antioch, Right, starts to explode. Right, it starts to become really vibrant. Lots of people uh, are receiving the Lord. They send Barnabas to Antioch to pastor the church in that city. And when and as soon as as Barnabas shows up, he settles things down. He brings stability to the church in Antioch. And then he decides, I can't do this alone. So he goes all the way up to Tarsus. You can see this in Acts 11. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for quite some time, Saul of Tarsus was in Tarsus, okay? And he was kind of like in his hidden years, right? He, has, he spent some years there, uh, um, probably getting right with God, who knows what. And then as one day Barnabas shows up and says, Brother, you remember my face? <laughs> I remember your face, right? We're going down to Antioch. There's a huge church there. You and I, we're going to pastor it. And so they go down uh, um, to the church in Antioch. And it was in Antioch that the Holy Spirit asked for Barnabas and Saul and Paul to be set apart for the missionary work that is to come. You can see that in Acts chapter 13, right? And so, the two of them, under the charge of the Holy Spirit, go on the first missionary journey. They travel from Antioch down to Cyprus, which is Barnabas's kampong. Eh? By the way, Cyprus is Barnabas's hometown. So they go, and generally people assume that Barnabas took the lead in the first missionary journey because they start by going to his kampong first, right? And that's where he's familiar. And so they go from there uh, uh, to Paphos and then they go up north you know and eventually um, they get stoned you know remember they and then they eventually make it back it was also Barnabas and Paul who registered a huge win right as I said men mentioned earlier at the Jerusalem council because there were factions of Judaizers who were pushing for uh, circumcision to be a requirement for the Gentile Christians and they went and they, they brought the good news of the salvation of the Gentiles you know they testified about it wherever they went and eventually Paul, Peter and James you know drew the line in the sand and said that's it right no circumcision for the Gentiles, you know, um, uh, you're going to be Christians. There was new identity in a way, right? And so, Paul and Barnabas had gone through so much together, right? Now, when I go through this, the way I've 
said it, maybe uh, lends it the flavour that it was quite a one-sided friendship. Barnabas is always the one looking out for Paul. But I don't believe so. I believe that the both of them uh, like went through thick and thin together. They were stoned, you know, uh, in the same cities. They, they, they went out and reached out to the lost together. They went through a lot together. Now, all this has led me to think about the friendships we have, right? And I think friendships are really precious things. Um, yeah, what about our own friendships, right? Uh, I think of this because I'm in full-time ministry and all of us are in some ways in a church environment and a church environment where the people we know, the people we are close to from season to season can end up being the people in your cell group, the people that you serve alongside with. And if, you, if I urge you to just cast your mind back to the last 20 years, if you have lived 20 years, I think most of us are... Uh, I have lived with a few teenagers here, you know. Um, then think of think of your kids, children's church, right? Um, I want to urge you and think about this: How many friends have you left behind by virtue of you moving church, you moving cell, you changing ministry? I can think of a few, and many of these friendships just fade off. They become they they fade off like a we sometimes say they die a natural death, right? They just, they just, it just naturally happens. And I ask myself, how true a friend was I? If the moment you take the ministry structure, because in church we bring you all together, we bring you all to do something together. There are folks at the back who are serving on sound together, on broadcast together, on ushers at the front together, you know, because we do something, there are leaders around you who bring you all together. But if we stop bringing you together, I know this because I've lived through it many times and you know it because you've lived through it yourself, right? Once we stop doing this, many of us will not see each other again. Many of us will go back to our existing friendship circles, our existing groups, our existing niches and we'll go on living in those lives and it makes me wonder, is what we are doing here really genuine? The moment you take this out, we won't see each other anymore. I ask myself that question all the time. And I used to feel the need to answer, it should be genuine. And the proof of genuine is if you take it out, we will still continue to do all these things together, together always, right? And then as I maybe grow older, I start to think that maybe God does bring people who would not normally and naturally be friends. And he puts them into the same place. And the beauty and the power of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is that he brings people who would not naturally be friends to serve and work for the sake of the gospel together. Such that, to prove the point, if he takes this away, these people would never gather. But because he does gather them, such diverse groups of people who would otherwise never be friends, can come together and do something great for the Lord. And I think that there's something genuine in that. I think what's genuine in that is the power of God to bring diverse and different people, cut differently, under normal and their own circumstances, would never independently gather. God gathers us. And this, my friends, is the church. 
The church is not just like my gang. My gang is all my type and that's my church. You know, that's not. The church is a melting pot of very diverse people and we see it right here, right? And I can tell you, the day we stop doing this, to prove the point of God's holding power, God's gluing power, God's magnetic work, is that if we stop doing this, we will all go on our separate ways. But I want to say this. On top of this, I want to challenge and ask you, how good a friend are you otherwise? Outside of this, how good a friend are you even to the people you would naturally click with? Are you, what defines a good friend? And maybe we don't preach about this enough. What defines a good friend? Because Jesus said that you are my friends. From now on, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And when I call you friends, it's because now you know what my thoughts are, what my plans are. You know, you are friends with the Father because now the Father reveals His plans to you. So I'm going to ask you, how good a friend are you? Are you in need of a little cajoling to keep up your friendships because some of them have been so-called dying a natural death already and you know, you should remember one or two of them? I've a, I, I, I really give thanks to God for Athalia who is always, you know, um, kind of like uh, uh, cajoling me to, hey, you need to keep up your friendships better. You need to set up dinner with, 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 with A and with B and with C and thank goodness for that because it's always a good reminder. Um, I say this with a lot of humility because I know I'm not good at it. You know, um, how are we at it? And if we're not good at it, do we have a wing person on our side to just urge us and spur us to maintain our friendships and that is where we come in, right? Because I and you may be in the same cell group. Outside our cell, we may or may not hang out but we can spur each other on to be more loyal, more faithful, more sacrificing for each other. You know, a good friend is one who will give their, their time and give their work without questioning and without calculating. Maybe we can do that for each other. But I don't want to belabor this point too much. But I do want us to think and to reflect on how good or what kind of friend are we, right? And even then, sometimes, we clash. And even then, for Paul and Barnabas who went through thick and thin together, who went through all kinds of, of highs and lows together, they fought. And their fight became really ugly and then it had lasting and permanent uh, uh, consequences. Indeed, right? <laughs> Adoy, right? Yeah. You know, there are two background things, incidences that cast a shadow over Paul and Barnabas' fight. Two things that happen. One, you will find it in Galatians 2. And before I show you the text, I want to describe what happens. Paul and Barnabas are ministering among Gentile Christians and also side by side with Jewish Christians. And if you weren't here last week uh, where we talked about the whole issue of circumcision, then this is a bit of a primer. The issue is, can Jews who are Christians eat with Gentiles who are Christians. Because it's not kosher, ma, but halal, ma, right? And so, we remember Cornelius, back in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius had already, uh, Peter had already given up his kosherness to eat together with, with a Gentile like Cornelius so that he can be saved. And thus was, was, begins a new era of a Jewish identity where if I'm a Christian, these kosher laws no longer apply because their life and God has already sanctified this, so I'm going to go, right? That was settled 
Or was it? Because now, as Paul and Barnabas are ministering among the Gentile crowd, they were eating with the Gentiles. And then suddenly, some Jews come from Jerusalem. And these Jews are the judgy kind. They are the kind who look at you sideways and look one kind and have all kinds of judgy comments about you like, yeah, why your Jews like that one? Huh? And Okay, maybe they don't talk like that, but... <laughs> when these Jews come from Jerusalem, Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. Bolo, I don't know, I don't know, right? And Paul fights with Peter. You can see in Galatians too. Paul fights with Peter and says, you're a hypocrite. Why you step back? Right? Why you step back? You should keep on eating with the Gentiles. Don't care what these Judaizers say, right? Another person who wobbled was Barnabas. It says here, for before certain men came from James, this is James is refers to Jerusalem. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. This is in reference to Peter, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Barnabas himself also started to question like, how, how? When these guys are not here, I gladly eat with them. But now that they are here and they're giving me these judgy looks, maybe, maybe, and Paul Bosong. Paul fought with him over it as well, right? So this is, now they definitely patched it up after this incident because they continued and, and, and continue on their missionary journey. They went to the Jerusalem council together. They praised God's work uh, um, in, in saving the Gentiles together. So they patched it up here. But this already put a dent, okay? A, a little shadow um, in, their, in their friendship. Now, another shadow uh, that would fall over their friendship is an incident about this John Mark, okay? John Mark. I was joking that John Mark is like Yoko Ono, you know? He comes in and he breaks up this Lennon-McCartney partnership, you know? Um, I don't know how many people get that as well, but this is what happens. First missionary journey, they go Salamis, Paphos, Perga, and right here, John Mark leaves the mission. Right? He gets up. Now, if I were to if I were to to make fun of him, as some I've I've read some people say he goes back to mummy in Jerusalem, right? But generally it is understood that John Mark could not take the heat of mission work. They were coming under pressure. They were coming under pressure. There was a sorcerer here. Remember Elimas, the sorcerer? Right? They were coming under all kinds of threats to their lives. It was difficult work. John Mark could not take the heat. He got out of the kitchen and they had to continue the remainder of the mission work with one guy red-carded. And 10 men have to fight 11 men, so to speak. Right? They had to, they had to continue with one man down. The text, you can see in... Acts 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John Mark left them, returned to Jerusalem, and then they had to go on, right? And so, this left another mark in Paul. Like, okay, this John Mark guy, tabule pakai, right? He is, he can't hack it. He don't have the, he don't have the chops, he don't have the strength, he don't have the grit, you know? So, mental note. Two years later, after that incident, when John Mark deserted them, this, today's text, happens. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. What do you think Paul does? Paul says, no, we're not taking that kid. 
He deserted us. He couldn't hack it in the first missionary journey, which, by the way, is the shorter journey, which, by the way, for all intents and purposes, is the easier of all the journeys here he plans to take. Now he plans to go even further. And can you imagine if things get really hot much further away where he cannot run home to mommy? Right? What are we going to do? What are we going to do with this guy? Maybe he's going to be like sitting on the side, sulking, crying every day, being scared and the one to follow. Like, we can't, ha- we can't take this. So a sharp disagreement took place. And the Greek word for sharp disagreement is actually one word. It's not two words. It's one word and the word is perosismos, right? Okay. And this word means something very sharp and provoking. Um, it refers to anger and a dispute in medical terms. Um, a paroxysm uh, uh, or something like that refers to a sudden violent fit or a sudden kind of like really uh, 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 violent kind of like epileptic seizure. It refers to a very red hot seizure that suddenly comes. And people, um, in English, it, is, it can be used, a paroxysm can be used to refer to um, temper that suddenly flares up, right? And so, a sharp disagreement uh, might be putting it a little mildly. I think the original Greek uh, actually betrays a little bit more fire than just a disagreement, right? And you've been in sharp disagreements before, right? You have argued with people before. Now, I want you to, if you're married, I want you to remember the worst fight you ever had with your spouse. Like, really, like, really fight, bang table, shout, you like, you always like this, what, what? And then you go on back and forth like that. Now, you don't have to be married to remember fights like that. I'm sure you've had fights like that with your friends, with your mom and dad, like, I hate you, bang, you know, I wish you were dead, bang, stuff like that, right? We all... We, we all remember some fight from our lives where we acted shamefully. Right? You all don't wanna. I'm the only one who can confess to acting shamefully in my fights. God, right? I'm not alone, right? Yo, Jujo, la sike. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Now, here's the thing. If I ask you to argue Paul's viewpoint, could you? Yeah, it's, it's there for the taking. Huh? If I ask you to argue Barnabas's point, could you? Can, huh? Can, huh? Hey, let's argue Paul's viewpoint first, okay? As I said to you just now, they're going on a harder, longer, further missionary journey. It's going to be tough. We can't just take any old hood who is going to bail on us, and this guy has a track record of zero out of one, right? He didn't finish. He quit halfway. And we can't carry a guy who is going to potentially bail on us, right? And there's a lot of work to do. Like out of, if I have to pick one guy, I'm going to pick the one guy who's going to fail, right? And so, Paul has a point. It is going to be harder. And the stakes are higher. Now, they're no longer just debutants in mission work, doing a short circuit. Now, they are considered intermediate level, right? Doing a further bigger circuit. They're going to meet challenges that they cannot... They're going to enter into Gentile cities further away from home. It's going to get tough. If you were Paul and Barnabas, would you bring John Mark? Right? Some people people will say no, right? Now, let me argue Barnabas' point of view. 
You know what Barnabas will likely be thinking at this point? Paul, you hypocrite. When you yourself, hey, John Mark deserted one mission trip. You know what you did? You killed Christians. You killed Stephen. You went church to church, dragged them out, bringing them to prison. You did far worse than John Mark. You know who bailed you out? You know who vouched for you? You know who gave you a platform to preach? I did. Why shouldn't John Mark deserve a second chance? You got the biggest second chance in the world. Paul, you dare to say no to John Mark having a second chance when you yourself got grace after grace and wave after wave of, of me putting my neck on the line for you. And we saw just now how many times Barnabas stuck his neck out for, for, for Paul. Right? Until in Antioch, he went all the way to Tarsus to bring him down. Pastor this church with me. I give you a chance to pastor a church. Right? And now, Paul, you want to be a hypocrite and say no to John Mark? No! We bring John Mark, if nothing else, for you to learn that John Mark is just like you. Would you bring John Mark? I'm going to step back. Y'all can have a sharp disagreement right now. <laughs> you see, my friends, sometimes the worst fights, the worst fights happen when both of you are right. Now, it's very easy if it's a, if it's a matter of a factual thing where you can show whether one is right or wrong. But it's not quite the same when it's a matter of perspective and decision and opinion. And when we are swimming in the greys, you are no longer playing in black and whites. You are swimming in greys about people, character, judgment, whether you are assessing whether someone is fit or not fit. And the worst fights really do happen when both of you have a very good point. And you know why? Because your point is so sensible to you. It is just so sensible to you. Paul's view is so sensible to Paul. For him, Paul is saying that we are in a season right now where we can't take any more chances. Like, forget about me last time when uh, whatever, you know, that was happening in Jerusalem. Things were different. Now it's different. Situation is different. Now I can't take a chance on John Mark. Barnabas has a different viewpoint. And for both of them, it is so sensible to them such that it blinds them from being able to see the equally valid sense in the other person's argument. And it causes us to not be able to back down. You know why? It's very hard to back down from something which you know is right. Paul will not back down because he knows he is right. Guess what? Barnabas won't back down because he also knows he is right. He also knows that Paul is being very hypocritical by denying Barnabas because he himself was a recipient of such grace. Neither will back down because both are right. Now I want you to think back to your worst fight again. To what extent were they also right? To what extent did they also have a point? And if now with the hindsight of many years and numerous scars, 
you can step a little bit back from it and say, if I were to be really objective, I can see their point. If I can be very objective, I wasn't easy to deal with either. If I must be very fair, I was a hothead too. And I contributed to the fight. And it takes two to clap. And that was also partially me. Are you able to do that? If you can't, I want to invite you into a place where the Holy Spirit can come and engage with you. I'm not urging you to, to, to accept blame that you don't deserve, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm doing here. I, mean, I, I am urging you, however, into, a, into a reflection, into allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into you, to look through you, and to reveal you back to yourself and to say, hey, hey, remember that from 2017. Remember that from the 1990s, right? That big one. Yes, that one. Could they not also have had a point? Yes, maybe. Can you be humble a bit? And even right now, for, forget right now about going to them to reconcile. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking you right now before God, can you admit? Maybe. Maybe. The worst fights happen when both are right. And it hurts most because they are a dear friend. It hurts most because they are a dear friend. Now, I've had... I've lost friends before. I've lost friends in ministry before. Not the kind that it just fizzles out like a natural death. I've lost friends because we also sharply disagreed over things before. Or they took offence to me before. Or maybe I took offence to them before. And it hurts because once we were dear friends, once we stayed up late at night talking about faith, about friendships, about life, about love, about God, about, about our people, once we debated points of theology and it was really hot but it was really fun and we had a good time doing it, you know, once we walked in Christ and we loved each other, and then somehow, at some point in our walk, things just broke. And I'm not just speaking for you. Maybe I'm, speaking on, I'm not just speaking for me. Maybe I'm speaking on behalf of all of us. If you were to think about wounds, pains, aches in ministry, maybe not suffered here, or maybe it was suffered here. Maybe it suffered from your former church or from a former place. Maybe not even in related church. Maybe happening elsewhere. Maybe in homes. Maybe in school. Maybe it was a secondary school friendship or a primary school friendship that was very dear and then something happened and, and something broke. I want you to know that Scripture is not silent on this. Scripture is not silent on this. David, the king, when he was in his older age, his, one of his closest confidants, his counsellor, Ahithophel, right, broke from him and when Absalom his son was, was in rebellion against him. Ahithophel picked his side and went with, with Absalom. And this was David's cry recorded in Psalm 55. He says, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. And David, you, you know, he's endured a lot of insults from his enemies. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you... You of all people, you, 
a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers of all people, you. That's why I can't take it because we used to be such close friends and we used to go to church together. We used to enjoy the Lord together and now break and it's most painful there. You know, I read a book recently. It's, um, it's fiction. It's, uh, it's called How Kyoto Breaks Your Heart. And uh, it's in some ways chronicling the breakdown of friendship uh, between the author and her friend. I'm going to pop it up here so you can read along with me. You know, these days I need reading glasses if I want to read something on... It says this, I, I, I thought this was really helpful because so few times people articulate this. We have so many ways to handle romantic breakups, but so few to navigate friendship breakups. It's hard to talk about losing close friends. Most of us don't have the vocabulary for it because it feels like failing at a compulsory class everyone passes just for turning up. It's a painful and embarrassing failure a wound you can't admit to publicly. You know, I feel embarrassed about my own friendship failures. Honestly, I do. This speaks very closely to me. Um, I feel embarrassed that I feel in some normal friendships. Now, maybe in, you know, you had a breakup, a romantic breakup in the past, and I kind of, yeah, okay, you pick one, one, one lover for the rest of your life, you know, you fail at that because maybe you set a different bar um, uh, uh, for, for compatibility and you can't marry everyone, so you break up with people whom you are not compatible enough with, you pick the one that's most compatible with, you move on with life, right? So we have kind of like the concept for leaving romantic partners behind and breaking off with them. But to break friendships, I mean, the bar is set not very high. You just have to, you know, be decent with one another and that's, by right, should be good enough. And even then, sometimes we fail at those things. And it's very embarrassing. I can tell you, it's even worse if you're in ministry and you're, it's doubly worse if you're in ministry fighting with people in ministry and you break up that way, right, as friends. And it's even worse when you're a pastor. Actually, no lie, it's just the same lie, okay? Let's just say it's just the same lie about but I can tell you this, when you are close, the closer you are, the harder it feels, right? Or as uh, Cheryl Crow says, first cut is the deepest. Sometimes it's like that, third point, third mini point under this big point. Flaring temper, nonetheless, is always a sin. Now, no matter how you square it, I felt the need to put this on the screen so that we can all own this one. Because sometimes... We hide behind certain personality types and we say that I'm just this kind of person. Yeah? Don't hold it against me. When I'm angry, I shout at people. I'm just this kind. No. You know what? No. Because there are some people who will be like, I'm just this kind of person. When I'm angry, I steal. And I go off and I like, and I like heap curses upon them in my mind. Right? I imagine them dying in various creative ways. You know what? That's also a flaring temper. And both of them are sinful. And we should not use what we know about personality types and character types and all kind of things, you know, in order to hide behind these things and then permit this thing as if it's acceptable to flare up like this. And I say this because Jesus himself 
in speaking about murder, says, yeah, you think murder is a sin. Yes, it is, of course. But once you cast at your fellow human, and you say, raka, you fool, right? I'm sure there was a lot of raka, bank table, you fool, over John Mark, raka, right? I'm sure in different words that took place. Thanks so much, Edward. Now, Jesus says, that's like committing murder in your heart. You've murdered them in your heart. You, you fool them, you've murdered them in your heart. Tantamount to that. And I want to say this and acknowledge this because sometimes we think that certain people in certain positions are allowed to get away with shouting, screaming, banging. Your boss at work might say that, I'm the boss, I can shout like that. No. Well, maybe in their little world, yes, and then you have the... You, you, you have the option to leave that world uh, because it, it, it doesn't align with reality. Uh. The reality is, no. God's reality, which is the only true reality, is no. And none of us should get a free pass. And I can tell you this. Later in your New Testament, you're going to read Paul talk about how we handle conflicts. And I can almost bet my bottom dollar that when he writes those things to the churches, Barnabas comes back to his mind. Because when I, when I talk about some of these things, some of the friendships that I've had to let go of, they come back to mind. Preparing for this sermon was not always easy because those friendships come back to mind. And if Paul is human like any one of us, I'm sure that when he's writing to the churches and saying that, all, that these are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and then Barnabas comes back and the lack of peace and the lack of patience and the lack of kindness comes back goodness, faithfulness gentleness gentleness and when he says these things and he ends with self-control oh my goodness I'm willing to bet with you that as he's writing those things he remembers, he prays and he says to the Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because that, that's what, that's a prayer, right? Forgive me, have mercy on me, a sinner. Flying temper, no matter how you square it, it's a sin. And last sub-point. Luke tells this story with zero sugar coating. Now, Luke, I didn't used to always like Luke's writing. I found him very matter-of-fact. He would just state the facts and move on, right? There's no dramatization one way or another. There's also no scrubbing, okay? So he doesn't clean this story up. He doesn't clean this story up. I'm going to ask you, if this was in your hands and your, let's say those two were your pastors, okay? How would you clean this story up? Or how will you be prone to say like, right? Or that, no, but these are parents. Let's say these are your parents, right? Barnabas and Saul are your parents. How will you be, feel the tendency, the urge, the temptation to want to like, no need to tell the whole world, lah, right? 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 How? Luke, Luke tells it, no? Zero sugar coating, huh? He knows zero dramatization as well, so he doesn't go like, and he bang the table, boom, 
you know, um, they could hear it from down the road, you know, like none of that, okay? But yet, he doesn't... So, this is my tendency. Maybe I'll share with you, right, my inclination. I'll be inclined to say... They're going to consciously uncouple. <laughs> no, they're going to strategically multiply the ministry. This is a strategic move and sometimes we throw God's name into it. No? We, should, shouldn't, we should be very careful to spiritualize these things. God is using this to multiply our ministry and strategically take us to extend the kingdom in not one missionary trip, but two. Now, I'm prone myself to taking an ugly situation like this and finding a nice way to say it so that it can seem like everything is okay. And we are all prone. I know this, right? Because in Asian culture, we always say, don't wash dirty linen in public, right? Actually, I don't know if it's just Asian culture, right? If you're not from an Asian culture, I don't know if you have the same view as well, right? And then, of course, you also have the opposite view. And of course, and we know that errors come in pairs. Don't unnecessarily, you know, no need to wash one. You also purposely go like, hey, call some people here. I want to wash my dirty linen, dirty linen in public. And both are true in some ways. But Luke does not sugarcoat this story. He tells it. And, and I think I know why he tells it. He tells it so that today we can learn something. He tells it first. There's a little bit of tall poppy syndrome going on here, okay? He's cutting down the myth of Paul and the myth of Barnabas. That these guys are not like, like epic, superweight, heavyweight, champion of the world, champion, apostle, Paul, and music comes on, and then Paul walks in like a grandstand entrance. He's not a superstar. He's a sinner. Have mercy on him, a sinner. And Barnabas too, have mercy on that guy too. He's also a sinner. So that today we can feel a oneness, even with the apostles, that there are no superheroes in the church other than Jesus that all of us are susceptible to tempers flaring and when we do that, we call it a sin and, and we don't sugarcoat it, we tell it like it is. They fought and they broke up. And there's no nice language, there's no, oh, this became an opportunity for us to double the ministry and to reach more unreached people groups. There's none of that. He's not trying to PR this thing, his way out of this. Y'all know PR, right? How many of y'all work in PR? Or, work in, or end up doing PR for your work, right? I don't know. Maybe you don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. It's, it's, it's an important part of work, but we also have to be careful when we bring that professionalism into our, into our friendships. And so these things happen. Can I just pause for a moment? Because I feel that I just want to lead us all to pray. I just want to lead us all to pray because our hearts are prone to some of these things and I don't want this moment to just jump from point to point without putting pause. Let's all pray for a moment. Father, we come before you and we concede and admit and, be, and are humble because we ourselves, we ourselves are prone to putting a nice spin on things and Lord, sometimes when we do these things, we run away from the truth. We don't acknowledge the reality. And sometimes that blocks us even from being able to be healed. And Lord, today, we want you to teach us how to name certain things so that when we name it, it can be healed. When we name it, it can be dealt with. When we name it, it can come onto the table. It's not hiding anymore. 
And so, Father, I just want to bring all of us before you and trust you for you to teach us how to know the limits, the lines, the, the extent to which we should say and not say, name and not name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is one more little excerpt that I wanted to read. How many of you are familiar with Pete's Cut Zero and this emotionally healthy uh, uh, discipleship thing, right? Okay. Now I'm going to go back in here and fish my reading glasses out. I didn't put this on the screen, so all the more I need to read it. Now, the background to this is Pete Scott Zero was a new pastor. Um, he's, his church grew very fast, and he was very prone to uh, making sure that the story sounds nice, right? Um, and then one day, after neglecting his Latin service, his Spanish language uh, congregation, he, he, he had neglected fulfilling some of the things he promised to his Spanish pastor, right? Like here, we have like BM and Chinese and all that, right? Um, they, he had a Spanish congregation. And one day, his Spanish pastor upped and left with a bunch of his Spanish church. And so he walked in and there were only 200 people left. And of course, what ensued was a very public and embarrassing situation in his church. And he says this, okay, now, when, when I read this, I want you to sense how he tries to put a nice spin on it, but actually he's very honest here. He says, my taste of hell went deeper than the congregational split. Suddenly, I found myself living a double life. The outward Pete, that's himself, the outward Pete sought to encourage the discouraged people who remain in new life. That's the name of his church. He said to them, isn't it amazing how God uses sins to expand His kingdom? Now we have two churches instead of one, I proclaim. Now more people can come into a personal relationship with Jesus. If any of you wants to go over to that new church, may God's blessings be upon you. I lied. I was going to be like Jesus, at least the Jesus I'd imagined Him to be, even if it killed me. It did. In my inward self, my hell was that inside. I was deeply wounded and angry. These feelings gave way to hate. My heart did not hold any forgiveness. I was full of rage and I couldn't get rid of it. Now, I think that's what it feels like sometimes when we go through the pain of relationships breaking, feeling betrayed by one another. And I think Pete Scazzaro is very honest in naming how he tried to put a nice, a nice quote on it to his church and say, ah, it's great. But actually inside, he's dying. He's so furious with this brother who broke with him. And he had to keep putting on a face. And that's what hypocrite means, by the way. It's wearing a Greek mask. Right? It's a Greek theatre. You wear a mask, so you show the whole world you are fine. And then when you're in your car, you take that mask off and cuss words just come out because you cannot handle, you cannot handle the pretense. Church, I want to say this to you. Can you develop a need for authenticity in the things around you? I, I'm not going to tell you the degree, but I'm going to tell you, don't become so accustomed to wearing the mask until you can wear the mask and you can, like him, lie to yourself through your teeth, even lie to people through your teeth. Please grow a sensitivity 
and a level of intolerance to it so that when you actually taste it, even if sometimes you have to bear it, it is hard to bear. Even if you have to bear it, I would like it if it was hard to bear for you. You know why? Because the worst is when you grow so accustomed to it, you can say it and it doesn't do anything. Without batting an eye, you can just say these things and you're like, yeah. Don't be like that. Please, grow a deep intolerance for it so that when even if you have to, sometimes, no choice or whatever, you walk back and you say, that didn't feel good. Lord, help me with future encounters like this. Amen? Amen? Father, I just pray that you help us with future encounters like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of futures, God had to bring them into a new future, Lord. A new future with new journeys, you know. As we saw just now, Barnabas took Mark. Paul took Silas. Away Barnabas went to Cyprus. Did they ever make it up? Technically, your Bible does not actually say so. You have to draw inferences on whether they do make it up. I'll tell you something. Paul does defend in 1 Corinthians 9, he defends his and Barnabas. By then, he was already split with Barnabas. But he defends the both of their right to work. Okay? So it's a complex thing. People are questioning whether they have the right to do things. He says that, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, you know, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord? Then he sarcastically says that, oh, or is it only me and Barnabas who cannot do these things, right? Who cannot earn a living for ourselves. And so he references Barnabas. And sentimental theologians are grabbing at this and oh yeah, he's remembering Barnabas, you know, I think that there is some kind of relationship there. I don't know. I won't, I won't go very far beyond the text. I'll say another one. Paul name drops Barnabas. Eventually, when he's writing to the church in Colossae, he name drops Barnabas uh, when he sends John Mark's greetings, which is very interesting in itself. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, also greets you, right? And Jesus who is called Justice, also greets you. He, gives, he sends greetings for three people. One of them is John Mark. Huh. He sends greetings for John Mark. Oh, it means that he and John Mark patched it up. I, yes, okay? John Mark, yes. Somehow he says, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is being generous for John Mark. He's saying that John Mark is going to come to Colosse, receive him. By the way, this is the John Mark who is Barnabas' cousin. Does this mean that he made it up with Barnabas? Might be a bit of a stretch Actually, this is the last mention of Barnabas He does mention John Mark again He urges Timothy to include Mark in their ministry And vouches for him Luke alone is with me Get Mark, bring him with you For he is very useful to me for my ministry And that's quite a sharp turn eh? Over the passage of time Now from saying, John Mark, don't bring him along Fellow useless to in his old age telling other people, take John Mark, he's good. So there is a redemptive end to him and John Mark. That is in the scripture. Is this some kind of signal that there is a redemptive end for him and Barnabas? I suppose you can say this that after many years have passed, Paul reflects on his assessment on John Mark and a bit of humility comes back. And a bit of regret probably sets in 
and a bit of sobriety comes in and he says, kid had his chance, right? And I suppose Barnabas managed to grow him into someone who would eventually be good even for my own ministry. And he could accept that. And he was not so hard in his heart, not so stubborn until his dying day, no to John Mark. He could accept John Mark actually grew. And Barnabas in some ways grew him. So did he ever make it up with Barnabas? I don't know. I don't know. And honestly, given that you're talking about first century AD, it's not like you can like WhatsApp each other and like, you know, FaceTime and like, hey bro, sorry lah, you know. You write letter, it takes like a long time to travel and every letter costs a lot of money because it's like parchment and all that. And one's in Cyprus, the other one is constantly travelling and if anything he's writing to the churches that he's visiting there's no letter to the church in Cyprus right at least not none that we are aware of you know so so we don't know right and in all likelihood it just fizzled out in all likelihood it just fizzled out in all likelihood when John Mark started getting into Paul's ministry it was an indication that Barnabas perhaps by then had passed away freeing John Mark up from one Sifu to now you know minister back you know, in the larger field or, you know, to be brought into Paul's ministry. Now, here's, here's the thing. There are some friendships that you may have left behind that there is still chance for reconciliation. And I want you to long for God to do that kind of work because God is a God of reconciliation. And today, the world is smaller. Today, we can reach each other better. And I'm not asking you to do it like afterwards at lunch, send a text. I'm not. I know these things are hard. The very mention can bring up memories and scar and pain and it can be very hurting and, and, and all that because it, you reload back you know, all, the, all the pain. I'm asking you to pray and ask God, first work inside me. First work inside me. And help me to be like Paul in my older age, acknowledge that maybe I made the wrong call, maybe I was a bit rash, maybe I was a bit this or a bit that. Or maybe they had a point too. Maybe they saw something I didn't see. At the first juncture, my call to you, today's sermon, is to urge you to step down from that fight and to come before the Lord and say, deal with me first. And if the Lord ever brings you before an opportunity to reconcile. Don't miss that window. Pray. I'm praying that God will also work on their side. That God will also work on their side to bring you together. And I always remember something Jesus said, while on your way to worship at the temple, if you know a brother has something against you, reconcile, settle things with them. You know, if not, no point, you bring your sacrifice. Leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and first be reconciled. Then come and offer your sacrifice. Wow. Wow. And I think to myself, I've gone to offer my sacrifice of praise for years with unresolved fights under my belt. How? How? Now, I know that Jesus speaks with a bit of What's the right word? Hyperbole sometimes, right? And so, he knows. He knows the journey you're on. He knows how difficult it can be. His urge for you is first step down from the fight. 
from the claim that you are the only one who is right and to reassess. His second call for you is to pray and allow Him to do a work inside you. And I think today it's good enough. And I can tell you that for some of your friendships, they might be restored in this lifetime. Maybe not restored ever to the way it originally was, but restored enough. Restored enough to fellowship. For some of them, they may never have the chance. Maybe they've passed away. Maybe you don't have a chance. Maybe they've moved away. You just don't have the chance anymore. I believe that God, who is God the Redeemer, on that other shore, He will cause us to be able to worship Him together, side by side, or it's not heaven otherwise. Can you imagine being in New Jerusalem and still holding grudges? That's not New Jerusalem if you're still holding grudges. The Lord will renew all our relationships. We will be perfected under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope for that day. Whatever broken things that we cannot resolve in this life, I'm hoping for that day. Looking forward to that day. Amen? Thank you for giving the Lord the time today to allow Him to speak, to allow Him to search. Because today is not fireworks sermon. Today is about the Lord searching, searching, going deeper. Can I have the worship team on stage? And I can say this, on a human level, there is sometimes half a way, there is sometimes no way. But God is the way maker. God is the one who carves out a path in the midst of dead ends. And so I'm going to encourage us all to rise to our feet, rise to our feet. And as the worship team leads us, into this song I just want you to pray through this song worship sing it but allow it to become a prayer for you to ask the Lord to create a way even if it's just create a way for me to step down from my horse my high horse create a way so that I can step down create a way so that I can come before you and be right again with you create some kind of way Let's worship the Lord right now. God, my Redeemer, that is who you are. The God of reconciliation, first reconciling us as sinners to the Holy Father in Heaven, that is who you are. The God who is a restorer of all broken things, that is who you are. The God who is a healer of broken hearts, that is who you are. If you need healing from a broken relationship, maybe a friendship, maybe a relationship, maybe even a marriage, maybe even a business relationship, it can be any kind of relationship, I just want you to hold your hands open before you, all eyes closed, all heads bowed. I don't need you to raise your hand too high. I don't need you to step to the front. I just need you to acknowledge this to yourself. Just hold your hands open before you right now and I want to close and pray for you. Lord Jesus, You see these hands that are held open before you. You see the cry, the need, the longing for God's touch, for your touch. We are invoking on this morning the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. We are invoking the name of Jesus to reach deep through these hands into my heart, into our hearts to bring healing. First, 
healing. Heal us of the wound. Heal us of the pain. And though we bear the scars, but the scars remind us of the scars of Jesus who himself was betrayed by a friend. And Father, in our pain, we ask for healing. And Father, we pray, Father God, that you do a work to touch lives on this morning. And Lord, we have no idea where there is a path forward. And we want to humbly stand in that place of ambiguous futures and say, Lord, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm surrendering this don't know into your hands. But I do know one thing. I stand here today, right now, on this morning, and I need you to heal. So may the love of God the Father fill you. Fill you to the full. Fill you to the brim. Fill you till you overflow. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, unmerited love for you, which He does also ask you to give unmerited love away to others. And some of these people have not merited your love. He is asking you to give it as you have received, so shall you give. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And may the sweet, gentle, convicting fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with us every day. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. All of God's people say, Amen. 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 Amen.